Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. This week, Nosferatu the Vampire, also known as Nosferatu Phantom der Nacht, I think is how you say it. Um, <laughs> we pronounce everything wrong on this show. It's just what we do. This week, we will be murdering the German language. Uh... <laughs> At midnight, all sorts of evil spirits are set loose. People disappear without a trace. Last night, after a tiresome journey, I finally reached my destination, the castle of Count Dracula. Sailor and our cook have disappeared without a trace. Century Fox. Nosferatu, the vampire, a film unlike any Dracula film ever made. Nosferatu, the vampire. working through Better Call Saul. My husband's a lawyer, so even re-watching the episodes I'd seen before, it was more fun doing it with a lawyer in the room. So having a great time. If you haven't seen Better Call Saul, whether you're a fan of Breaking Bad or not, highly recommend. There's a podcast by a couple of comedians, Dave Anthony and Gareth Reynolds, called The Dollop, which people should be pretty familiar with if you're listening to comedy podcasts at all. They've got well over 500 episodes out. But I, like a lot of podcasts, I jump around a lot. So I haven't gotten too far in this. I'm in, in the first few dozen episodes. And the episode I've been listening to recently is their 25th episode, which is called The Two Dogmen. It's about Kit Burns and Henry Berg. And basically, one was an early animal rights 
activist and the other was an early dog fighter in New York. But in particular, it's mostly about rats. Like they would put the dog in a pit to fight rats. And I thought that that was highly appropriate given that we're going to be talking a lot about rats today. I just finished that episode. It is hilarious and horrible at the same time. And the following episode after that, that I started just yesterday and I'm not all the way through is called the talk board. And the talk board Mm -hmm. is about the 19th century spiritualism movement. That also is very appropriate to what we're talking about today, which is Nosferatu from 1979. This is Werner Herzog's adaptation or remake of the 1922 Murnau classic that we did last time. So, 1979, we've already done the Hollywood version of Dracula from 1979, or one of the Hollywood versions of Dracula from 1979. And now we're looking at this German film about Dracula from 1979. I've said it before, I'll say it again. 79 was a very big year for Dracula. What was 1979 like, Rosie? There was a lot that happened in 1979. There was a Three Mile Island nuclear accident Pink Floyd released The Wall. USSR invaded Afghanistan. Margaret Thatcher was elected prime minister in the UK. Sony released The Walkman. The snowboard was invented in the United States. Lord Mountbatten and three others were assassinated in Northern Ireland. 63 Americans were taken hostage in the American embassy in Tehran. The UK public sector workers went on strike. ESPN was launched. The uh, Soviet Union and the United States signed the SALT II Treaty. The Sahara Desert experienced snow for 30 minutes. Pope John Paul visits, visited the first communist country. He visited his native country of Poland. Um, the WHO concert at Riverfront Coliseum, Cincinnati, Ohio. 11 fans are killed and dozens are injured at a WHO concert. They still talk about that in the news here in Cincinnati today, to this day. Every year on the anniversary, they bring it up. It's it, it still has an effect on our town here. The world's first anthrax epidemic began, epidemic began in Katerinburg, Russia, following a biological weapons plant accident. Let's talk about the um, production notes here. First off, I'm just going to mention that I am a huge Werner Herzog fan. I celebrated my honeymoon at the Pelluride Film Festival in 2022 and he was there celebrating his 80th birthday and i have a signed copy of the program with verner's best wishes for my marriage which i can't tell if it's sarcastic or not but both ways i love it (laughs) so i i just i just picture him afterwards like i wished her best luck on her marriage well we will not (laughs) We know it will not be so. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I don't I don't care whether Werner thinks my marriage is doomed or not. I enjoy having this framed at home either way. But aren't um, we all doomed? <laughs> yes, I think we should maybe do this episode in a Werner accent. This this would please me. So uh 
Werner, of course, is, you know, considered a legend right now and, you know, has a lot more resources as a filmmaker because he's been so successful. But back in 1979, he was still this, you know, rough and tumble filmmaker just getting by with a crew of 16 people, for instance, for Nosferatu wow. and a minimal budget. So if you could just picture that. He considered Murnau's Nosferatu to be perhaps the greatest piece of cinema to come out of all of Germany. And he was very eager to make an homage to that film, honor it that way, and also to bring the story closer to their present moment. There are some interesting behind the scenes legends about this film as there are about all of Werner's movies of this time. The two pieces that really jumped out at me were the opening sequence for this film. The The credits are, are filmed over a montage of various skulls. And I was definitely wondering, where is this? How did he get, how did he film that? Uh, and these are mummies of the Guanajuato Museum in Mexico. See, we get to butcher more than just German in this episode. <laughs> but <laughs> those mummies are all victims of the 1833 cholera epidemic. So bringing the theme of the plague, even from the beginning of this film, he took the corpses out of the glass cases that they were protected by and sort of rearranged the bodies in the order of youngest to oldest, which oh you no, know, you can just picture. So cringing right now. That's so Werner Herzog. It's like, let's just take these out and rearrange them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so bodies were disrespected. Rats were also disrespected in the making of this film. Disrespected, injured, and murdered. I heard that Herzog said the rats were better behaved than Klaus Kinski. Well, I mean, actually, as far as Klaus Kinski is concerned, he was much better behaved in this picture than in any of the other Herzog films. Like, you know, despite four hours of makeup, he cooperated most of the time but i'd say like overall kinski behaving in herzog's films yeah the rats probably i'm also a huge herzog fan and very fundamental to my interest in film was seeing aguirre the wrath of god in which kinski goes full-on crazy apparently on and off screen and um as much as kinski feels like the same way De Niro is to Scorsese, like he uses them all the time or His now muse, DiCaprio. Yeah. yeah. It's still perfect casting. Like if you're going to find someone at that time, 1979 to replace Max Shrek, who himself was quite the oddball, be hard to find somebody better than Kinski for that. Dutch behavioral biologist, Martin Hart was hired by Herzog for his expertise in lab rats and the rats used in the film were laboratory rats but they were not treated with the same kindness and care I'm going to put that in quotes that you see for laboratory rats uh, a lot of them died being imported from Hungary they, they started to eat each other on their Ew. arrival at the Netherlands yeah and because they were lab rats, you know, they were all just like plain white rats and that wouldn't do for this film at all. So Herzog insisted that they be dyed gray 
And in order to do so, supposedly, they submerged the cages in boiling water, which killed another half of the rats. And oh my God. then they painted them gray, which the rats proceeded to lick off. So it was kind of a disaster. And yeah, many rats were harmed in the making of this film. But, you know, considering that crew members died in some of Herzog's other films, this is a minor casualty in comparison. Wow. Uh, Herzog considers Kinski to be the definitive vampire. In a 2021 interview, he says that no one else has gotten close. Although, interestingly, in that interview, he also took some time to talk about his affection for the Twilight series, which he said, we have to take it seriously that there are films out there that know how to address a 14 or 15 year old. What? This this is a very special Ew. sort of approach and I couldn't do it, yet these films could. I see that much of it is silly, but at the same time, I respect these films. Okay, this is coming from the man who said, I do not care for Stoker's novel. I consider yeah. it mediocre literature, you know? <laughs> yet the Twilight series? Really? Really, Werner. Yeah, I know. So on that subject, Herzog said, Stoker's novel is a kind of compilation of all the vampire stories floating around from the Romantic times. What is interesting is that it focuses so much on new technology, for example, the use of telegrams and early recording machines, etc. Like the changes society was undergoing in the 19th century, there may well be something similar taking place today, as for some time we have been living in the digital age. So this is Hartzog talking about how this story and how his film continue to speak to some of the perhaps less obvious terrors than the vampire in the film, but the anxieties around technology that were present in the novel was something that continues to be interesting to him even today as he reflects on the film. He also talked in this interview about how he got around some of the red tape trying to get the film made. He made this film back-to-back -back with another film called Wojciech, which also starred Klaus Kinski. I confess I have not seen this film, but Klaus Kinski basically plays a, a madman of some kind, as always. But I have to say uh, that that has been on my to-watch list forever. Like, I'm never going to be able to see every film Herzog Herzog makes films faster than I can watch films, right? But that <laughs> one has been on my list for a long time. Well, it was interesting to hear that the films were made back to back with only five days in between. And they basically just like let it slide on the same permits and paperwork in the towns they were shooting in. Oh, oh, the forged paperwork. You, yes. <laughs> so like apparently in Herzog's film school, he he's like, I teach the important stuff on day one. Lock picking and forgery. These are the two skills <laughs> every filmmaker should know. Yeah, on that subject, he talks about how he was working with the governments and he said, I just tricked them. They are natural enemies, bureaucracy and art. You have to out trick them, outsmart them. I would engage authorities with what they love most, paper. I would fill out pages with random figures and they couldn't make sense of it, but they were engaged. Sometimes some of the things I did with the necessary and natural amount of criminal energy. And you can feel that come through in the film. He defended breaking into the town hall and getting a copy of the necessary permit and then forging it. He said, you have a natural right to make a film. 
That's not like that's his defense. It's like you can as long as you're not hurting anyone in Herzog's opinion, you can break any laws you need to because it is your right to make that film. Apparently so. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to argue. Herzog's films are pretty great. I think he has the right to make most. I films. wish I had known that when I started making films because it's true. It's And I don't know anyone who is an actual filmmaker, a director who's directed a feature film who has not had to skirt the law in one way or another at some point because everything is aligned against you. Quick sidebar story where I was a production manager on a production that was shooting in, all right, I'm going to call them out, Edgewood, Kentucky. And we were shooting in the basement of this house. We weren't disturbing anyone, but they found out we were making a film and cops it would come to the door and harass us the whole week long because we didn't have proper permits. And so, of course, you couldn't get a permit until like Monday and we were shooting on a weekend and then you couldn't get a permit until then they had never been asked for a permit. So it got kicked over to like the town hall in Covington on Tuesday. Meanwhile, I'm just like, Keep shooting, guys. They can't shut us down. Like, could you stop somebody from making a painting? And I guess it turned out they wanted to co collect payroll taxes from us, and our budget was ridiculously small anyway. So I'm like, good luck. I'm trying to find enough money to feed this crew, you know? So, <laughs> so yeah, right. I think if there's one thing we can learn from Herzog, aside from the stuff that's on screen, it's that sometimes you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then sometimes mm -hmm. you also have to, you know, cooperate and leave some of the eggs as they are. For instance, the studio Fox that was going to distribute the film insisted that he make an English language version and a German language version. And in order to accomplish this, he filmed some of the scenes in English and some of them in German and then kind of dubbed and stitched them together. But he considers, of course, the German version to be definitive, which is the version I watched. I'm curious to hear whether you did the same and what you thought you went watch which version the german version oh yeah absolutely me too rosie did you watch the german or the english version i watched the english version that i found on youtube <laughs> <laughs> supposedly in the uk this was released on a double bill with ralph bakshi's wizards oh no way that to me sounds like you're asking for drug users to show up at your theater because in 1979, yes. Once again, the plot's going to not super closely, but it's going to follow Stoker's novel. It's especially going to follow Murnau's Nosferatu. So I'm not going to go into a long breakdown of the plot. We're just going to jump into talking about it. Some of the differences Jonathan works for Renfield in this one. So Renfield is the real estate agent. We've had something similar to that in other ones, including Murnau's version where Nock was the stand-in for Renfield. He's married to Lucy. So remember when we were talking about the Langella Dracula, we were talking about this too. Was it the Langella or was it the BBC one? I'm trying to remember. Or was it both where he was with Lucy instead of Mina? Yeah, I think it came up with both of them. So in 1979, for some reason, all of the Dracula films, well, the ones we've talked about so far, have Jonathan with Lucy. And in this case, he's actually married to Lucy and her sister is Mina. So again, they're sisters, which we saw in the BBC Count Dracula from two years earlier. 
I feel like all these movies are borrowing from each other because mm-hmm. there's this new idea of what Dracula is forming where it's like Lucy and Mina are sisters and et cetera, et cetera. I want to call attention to the authentic gypsies. They speak Romany in this. You know, Romany is a really, it's a dying language. There have been only about a dozen films ever made in the Romany language. And this one has just scenes with the gypsies and there's no subtitles. There's no translation. Herzog himself did not know what they were saying. <laughs> so, um, but- They could have uh, been cussing them out for all you know. Probably were. I do know that supposedly they they had fleas from their lifestyle and the other cast and crew would complain about it. And Herzog said it was the something like the justice of the flea. Like, <laughs> like somehow the fleas were helping to balance this class difference or something. It's not my favorite Herzog film. I think it's also very melodramatic in the speaking parts. But... You know, if I were to channel my teenage, you know, when I thought I was so cultured and refined and into European film as art, what that teenager would say to me today is that Herzog's films are, they're like, they're poetry. They're like filmed poetry. They're not meant to be read literally or viewed literally. Like the most Herzogian scene in this is when Harker's walking through the mountains on his way to the castle, it looks like a Herzog film or the films we will get later as documentaries where there's this rising music as night falls over the mountains. And there's just these long takes, these shots that just, he holds the shot for a long time and you see the beauty and the poetry in nature that someone like him has to show us is there, like captures it so well. If you've seen any of his other films, like the Volcano one, or I forget some of the titles. Yeah. I mean, I, I found myself thinking about Fitzcarraldo a lot. Some of it is the nature imagery and some of it was just the use of music in the second half of the film reminded me a lot of that. In Grizzly Man, he talks about how Tim Treadwell like leaves the camera on and like accidentally captures this wonderful scene of the wind in the grass and all of that and it's amazing and and he talks about how timothy treadwell was actually a horrible naturalist and bear aficionado or whatever he was but a really good filmmaker accidentally you know (laughs) and uh the gypsy scenes also he lingers with longer than we would normally have them but marginalized peoples is something that comes up in herzog's work again and again And it's those kinds of scenes that really make this Dracula for me. Anyway, we get to the castle and Dracula is so creepy and over the top that I'm like, why would you spend even a single night there? In the other Draculas, Harker's not crazy about, you'll have to spend a month here. You know, I'm not crazy about that idea, but he'll do it. Dracula is a good host on the first night and stuff like that. But this one, Dracula is just so (laughs) creepy and yeah, and especially the first night when he shows up in his bedroom, like, why would you even try to stay the first night? That's kind of where it gets into this sort of over the top. And it'll happen again with Lucy later on. It's like, this guy is totally creepy. Why are you tolerating this? Right. Like when he showed up to the castle, why didn't he just turn tail and leave at that point? The dude was blue. 
Okay. How much more creepy can you get than some guy that is blue with weird teeth answering the door like that? No. I I wouldn't even go in. I wouldn't even go in. First glimpse, I'd be like, yeah, I'm out. I'm going to find a way home. This is another one where the bat flies from Transylvania to Vismar and back in one night. The bat appears in Lucy's room and I'm like, so maybe that's not that far a flight for a bat. I don't know, but at least it's closer than London or or Whitby. But I was kind of like, here we go. And by the way, another cute fruit bat. A slightly People... larger fruit bat, though. I mean, they're getting bigger. Yeah, but they're so cute. I'm like, why would you? Yeah, you guys, if you're making a vampire film, don't use cute bats. <laughs> uh, speaking of bats, the flight of the bat it's this bat on this blue background, which I swear we've seen. It looks exactly like the footage of the bat in Dracula with Langella hmm. in the opening titles. And it also yeah. looks exactly like that in the Count Dracula, the British film. Like just they've amped up the color in, in those. And so I looked it up and this is the only stuff that Herzog's crew didn't shoot. This is stock footage that came from a nature documentary so you hear it here oh, first wow. i couldn't find mm -hmm. confirmation of this but i am saying i think all three of these films use the same stock footage oh okay same bat dracula never dies <laughs> <laughs> same bat okay. time same bat channel <laughs> <laughs> talked about the 1922 version the scene where in that version count orlock insists on sucking the blood from the cut on uh in that film hutter's hand that that scene the way this plays out with him you know really not taking no for an answer was yeah legitimately scary and uncomfortable um mm -hmm. with with dracula here going after Harker, which you don't see in other versions of Dracula. And I don't think it's true to the novel that Dracula is more like trying to resist the temptation of the blood. And this was really chilling. So well done. <laughs> the ship, when it pulls into port, it's supposed to be Vismar, but it's actually... I think it's in the Netherlands that they filmed this. I don't know the, the actual city. Anyway, did you see the name on the side of the ship? No, I missed it. The Contamina. C-O-N-T-A-M-A-N-A. -A -A. Oh. The Contamina. Perfect. That's ominous. <laughs> All right. And on that note, I think it's time to... Well, Contaminate I would say... Contaminate ourselves with, with some beverages? I, I think it is. I never drink. Why? <laughs> However, this time we are going to drink wine. All right. As I said before, I know nothing about wine. So part of the reason I'm doing this is to learn a little bit about wine. As mentioned before, Germany isn't what you'd exactly call a top 10 wine country. Nevertheless, it does produce one variety of white wine, Riesling. Yeah, it's my favorite. It's the sweetest of the white wines. It is sweet. The people are seen frequently eating green grapes and drinking white wine in this film, so I'm going to assume it was Riesling. 
I also didn't go period on this because I hate to think of what 1979 East German wine from Wismar would taste like. Yeah, like like bad grape juice, not like wine. In our setting, Wismar, it's the northeast of Germany. Why Herzog had to film in the Netherlands is because this was behind the Iron Curtain. This was in East Germany. And as a West German, he could not go there. Wismar is in the northeast of Germany, but... The region most known for producing Riesling is actually the complete opposite end of the country in the Southwest, basically the high Rhine areas like the Mosul Valley. We know this from historical records that's been produced there since at least the early 15th century. Riesling isn't even one of the top 10 most consumed white wine varieties, but among experts, it's considered to be one of the big three, along with Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc. Mm-hmm. The high sugar and high acid concentration makes it suitable for cellar aging for decades, possibly centuries, without a loss of quality. As I mentioned when I talked about Tokai in a previous episode, the grapes infected with the noble rot fungus are particularly valued for Rieslings because of not only the flavor, but extending the cellar aging times. I generally consider wine tasting as bullshit. Like that whole like sommelier, <laughs> like, oh, it has hints of apricot, etc. I'm like, no, it tastes like wine. But it should be noted that some of these wines are said to have, quote, striking petrol notes. And I'm quoting here from Wikipedia that is sometimes described with comparisons to kerosene, lubricant or rubber. Translation, <laughs> it tastes like gasoline. Sweet, sweet gasoline. (laughs) There's widespread debate among wine aficionados as to whether or not this is a good thing, because of course there is debate about whether or not beverage tasting like gasoline is a good thing among sommeliers. We just used to call that boons. Wine tasted like gasoline. (laughs) Oh man, that stuff gave me alcohol poisoning back in the day. Wow. (laughs) I want to go into what exactly these petrol notes are supposed to be. Again, drew this from Wikipedia. The petrol note is considered to be caused by the compound 116-trimethyl and 12-dihydronaphylene, TDN which during the aging process is created from carotenoid precursors by acid hydrolysis. The initial concentration of precursors in the wine determines the wine's potential to develop TDN and petrol notes over time. From what is known of the production of carotenoids in grapes, factors that are likely to increase the TDN potential are ripe grapes, that is low yield, late harvest, high sun exposure, water stress, which is most likely in regions which do not practice irrigation. And they're primarily in certain dry vineyard sites in hot and dry years and high acid content, which we've already said Riesling has. These factors are usually considered to contribute to high quality Riesling wines. So the petrol note is more likely to develop in top wines (laughs) <laughs> then simpler top wines, wines. In like high-end wines is that what they mean when they say top wines yeah and also in high yielding vineyards especially those from the new world where irrigation is common so i can't remember what brand i had when i was watching this movie but it was probably u.s 
brand because I wasn't willing to spend a whole lot on Riesling, which I'm not a wine guy. So also- Chateau Saint-Michel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's produced in the U.S., most notably in California, Michigan, New York, and Ohio. Riesling's serving temperature is best between 45 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 7 to 9 degrees Celsius. If you place it in the refrigerator, basically get down to 37 degrees. So ideally, you're supposed to let it warm up a little bit. I don't let it warm up a little bit. I like it cold, but that's uh, my own personal preference. I let it warm up to that temperature, but it tastes like wine to me. I'm not a sommelier, mm, yeah. but I can tell you that it was highly acidic and very sweet. Two things that like Riesling is supposed to be. So my mm-hmm. wine pairing recommendation for the 1979 Nosferatu is what I had a glass of Riesling, which is what I believe they're probably drinking in this film. If I had to guess. Have you ever seen the movie Sideways? I have. I freaking love that movie. And you having that that whole segment just made me think of that movie. And to this day, I still quote it. I'm like, I'm not drinking Merlot. If anybody drinks Merlot, I'm leaving. See, the thing <laughs> is, this is I, I can't stand Paul Giamatti's character either because not only is he a wine snob, not as snobby as the other wine snobs, but he doesn't like Merlot, which is like, my, that's like my most favorite kind of wine is Merlot. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) he was such an ass in that movie, but it was a great film. It was a great film. It was a very good film. I got to see that in the theater at a little theater in Yellow Springs ages ago when I was on a weekend trip away with my ex-husband to celebrate our anniversary. Oh, Um, we can give a shout out to the Little Art Theater. It's known worldwide. The Little Art Theater in Yellow Springs, Springs. Ohio. Mm -hmm. The Little Art Theater. Actually, very well known among cinephiles. I'm jumping ahead here, but Lucy basically tries to tell Van Helsing about this. And in, in this, Van Helsing is more like Dr. Seward. He doesn't believe in vampires. Things pretty much go off the rails pretty fast as thousands of rats take over the town and spread the plague. I was never sure what Dracula's goal is by spreading the plague, unless it's to cover his tracks. Like, they won't notice that I'm feeding upon all these uh, victims because so many other people are dying of the plague. I don't know. I don't think this version of Dracula is the, like, criminal mastermind version of Dracula that we get in other areas where he's, like, figured out his whole plan of like, I'm going to get an abbey in downtown London, and then I'm going to make more vampires and slowly infect and take over. I get more the sense that the rats are like an accident. Like he's like king of the rats. The rats are with him. They spread disease and it's not part of a plan. It's just like it happens because the rats like are just part of his whole deal. I don't know. I don't think so. Because at one point, Renfield asks him what he should do, and he sends Renfield ahead to the next town, and he's like, take the rats with you, you know? Like, the rats will follow you or whatever. <laughs> take um, the rats with you! <laughs> um, it sound, seems like he has a plan. He wants to move on to the next town, and he's going to advance Renfield ahead of him. Can I just add an aside about Renfield in this film? 
the first time I saw him, I did a double take because I thought it was Rowan Atkinson. I like I knew intellectually it couldn't have been, but then all I had in my head was like, all right, I'm gonna recast like a new version of Dracula with Rowan Atkinson as Renfield, and it's gonna be amazing. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> we should yeah, we'll talk comedic takes on Dracula here in the future. We should do, definitely talk about that as chaos ensues which is i'm sure the way that herzog would describe it people are seen like dancing and celebrating and stuff like that and later in the in the story they tell us like some people have already been infected with the plague and they may as well celebrate while we can there's a big banquet with of course white wine and grapes and stuff like that but before we even get to that they're seen playing horns and dancing in the street and stuff like that and that reminded me of paintings and depictions not only of not yes. only this, but of the St. Vitus the plague. dance. The plague, yeah. yeah. But not not the bubonic plague, St. Vitus's dance, which is was a different plague where people had motor tics. It causes what's known as St. Vitus's dance, which was another medieval plague, but it was possibly confused with them. And I, I even saw people doing Ring Around the Rosie in, in this, mm -hmm. which another mm -hmm. classic plague thing to do. Herzog's subtlety about the connection between Dracula and the plague is about as subtle as Toho's Godzilla and the bomb. Like, it's not <laughs> subtle at all. It's like in your face. I just skipped all the way to the end. Essentially a direct remake of the 22 Nosferatu. Isabel Adyani, who is almost preternaturally beautiful, has to sacrifice herself to Dracula to uh, save everybody by keeping him past dawn in what is definitely a creepy sexual situation. I yes. have to say this film did that better. I found the 22 version like a little vague and unconvincing about like how how is this going to work? Like It was 1922. <laughs> I know and and there are reels missing. We know. But, but I'm I just talking about what they can and can't show, you know. Oh, okay. Well, also that. But what I liked about this version, what they they repeated it enough times where you you kind of understood what was going on. And then also the fact that Van Helsing is so totally useless in this movie made it seem more like in this version, I guess it's Lucy, had a plan and like was, you know, figuring out like no one is gonna stop this except me. I have to figure out the solution to this. And I think in all of the other versions of Dracula where the Mina character at some point is called on to stand up to Dracula in order to bring about his end, that it's never quite as convincing as it is in this version, which I really liked. What I saw in this film that I hadn't seen before was when she took the, the crushed communion wafers and sprinkled them around as a barrier, kind of like a salt barrier, you know, salt protection barrier, except this time it was communion wafers. And he, so he was just kind of like stuck in that chair and he Yeah, Jonathan up. stuck. Yeah. yeah. What's really weird about that is that this is one of the lesser faithful adaptations to Stoker's novel, but that actually happens in Stoker's novel, except for with Mina instead of with Jonathan. Van Helsing does that at one point, both to keep her in and to keep the brides, brides out. out there are so many things that this film i think does better than other versions and one of the main ones is the use of the reflection 
it kind of builds you towards the moment where you realize that Nosferatu doesn't cast a reflection. There's a moment early in the film when we see Lucy sleepwalking and we see her reflected in the water upside down before realizing we're seeing a reflection of her. And then there's this beautiful scene of the carriage traveling along the water and the reflection of the carriage upside down in, in the water there. And then when we see Nosferatu have this confrontation with Lucy in her bedroom and we see the shadow creeping up behind her and there's no reflection, but she can sense or see in some way that he's coming for her. They build towards that moment in such such a beautiful way and don't draw too much attention to it. So mm -hmm. I, I want to applaud Herzog's version for playing on the the lack of a reflection for the vampire, but not in a corny, stupid way, as some of the other films have done. And that scene where they're basically negotiating, Nosferatu is saying, like, I will give your husband his mind back if you sleep with me. <laughs> and just like uh, that scene doesn't show up anywhere in in the novel in any of the other adaptations but it made the stakes very very clear and i i like this interpretation of that that encounter between the two of them that carriage reflection in the water is another example of what i think herzog is good at which is not the actual actors and the dramatic part I think Herzog's real strength is these amazing images. It's no accident that he's become famous for voiceover narration because he's got that great accent and voice, uh, voiceover narration of scenes of remarkable power and beauty. That's really where he's at his best. In my opinion, the stuff with Dracula, like menacing people with long fingers and like posing and stalking them, like... And then the sort of dialogue, which is kind of weird. I'm guessing it was improv. I don't know. That doesn't play to his strengths. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sort of an example of that. This might be my favorite version of the boat. Um, and, and it's a direct reference to the 1922 version, but I like the way Herzog did it more. We get a little bit more of the boat on the water, but... The whole sequence of the contamina, as you said, coming into town is just gorgeously shot. When you said the boat, I thought you were going to refer to the raft. Oh, that also. Yeah, the raft is great. <laughs> the gypsies taking the coffins down the river on the raft, which happens in a bunch of these. It happens in the novel anyway, and it happened in the graphic novel, and it happens in some of the film versions. But that is reminiscent of other Herzog films like... Aguirre. <laughs> well, Aguirre. Uh, yeah, that one. As and well Fitzcarraldo. As, and Fitzcarraldo. Yeah. That's what I was trying... Yeah. Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre. So, you know, I think you put humans in nature and that's where Werner Herzog really shines. You put humans indoors on sets talking and that's not his strength, in my opinion. And this is coming from a big Herzog fan, but still better than a ton of other directors. It was beautifully shot. I love the choice of actress for Lucy. I thought she was absolutely beautiful. She it still is, by the way, Isabel Adjani. She's getting up there in years. Yeah, she's been in the public eye a lot recently due to legal troubles, but still stunningly beautiful. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I uh, just pulled up the, the cast of this film, and it looks like they had a more modern picture of her. And yeah, and it's still stunning. Yeah, I, I feel like the cast was well chosen. It was beautifully filmed. I'll even make a comment here about the makeup, too, the way they did Isabel's makeup for her character. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. Perfect smoky eye. <laughs> too beautiful like mm-hmm. i mean it works mm-hmm. it kind of works but she's supposed to be like super pure and stuff like that to a, a woman of pure blood or something i forget what it was i don't know that i would have cast her but uh she is incredibly beautiful i don't think i tipped into the realm of seeing nosferatu as an erotic character the way yeah, Johnny and yeah, like and Herzog and Kinski seemed to think this character could go. I did not see that, but I also saw how much influence this film had on later Dracula titles and in you know the construction of shots and the feelings of longing for a life that is less lonely. And I really like the use of the plague in this taking what's in the 22 version and just taking it one step further. Yeah, it added to the terror for sure. So as I've said, it's not my favorite Herzog film, but it's still well worth seeing. It is not my favorite Dracula. It's not even my favorite Nosferatu. I prefer Murnau's original, but I think it is well worth seeing. It is an excellent choice if you're looking for a vampire film. If you haven't seen it, you definitely should. We have now watched two Draculas from 1979. We've watched the Dracula with Frank Langella, and we have watched this version of Dracula with Klaus Kinski. We have still not watched the highest grossing Dracula adaptation from 1979 so we will watch that next week if you want to tell us your thoughts on this film just give us a email at gc8 podcast that's letter g letter c number eight podcast at gmail.com check out our back episodes if you're just joining us we've covered a number of versions of dracula already with more to come until next time this is eric this is rosie this is johanna signing off Uh, my relationship to uh, Bram Stoker has been uh, very easy to decipher. I don't like his book. It's very mediocre literature. <laughs>